Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, or if you're in the future watching this, hi in the future. Uh, those are always possibilities of folks uh, watching us from the future. I want to thank you guys for being here today and joining us for this uh, lively and uh, awesome interview that I've been looking forward to for quite some time. And I have with me today Dr. Corey Miller. Um, and we'll learn a little bit about him, but he's the CEO and president of Ratio Christi, and we'll talk about the organization and what its efforts are and what it tries to do. Um, we'll just bring him in here. We'll talk about, as we usually do, uh, educational background of our guests and, uh, and how they've navigated through that. Uh, and I think uh, Dr. Miller's uh, uh, experience is quite unique uh, from... Uh, uh, this little info he's given me and we'll learn from that and I will jump into this extremely important and timely conversation about free speech on college campuses and how to navigate that. So welcome and thank you for joining us today, Dr. Corey Miller. Arthur, thank you for the opportunity for allowing me to be here with you. Okay, so let's jump into your uh, kind of background. So you grew up Mormon, right? I did. Mm -hmm. um, and then you came to Christ uh, as a kid. Is it fair to say as a teenager, kind of uh, later teenager uh, years? Right, sixteen years old. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I I believe that would have been quite the experience and shock for family because you, uh, it's kind of a generational right LDS um, from your experience. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting depending on your background and your immediate family. For example, um, my immediate family was sort of Jack Mormon, um, which is in Christian parlance kind of lukewarm uh, Christian. My extended family was what you would call Molly Mormon in Utah, very committed and devout. And uh, just last week, I was in Nauvoo, Illinois, doing some video shooting for a third book I'm working on on the topic. Um, we were looking at where Mormonism really got off the tarmac. And um, my ancestor was uh, seven generations back. His plot of land was adjacent to Joseph Smith's mansion. He was one of his bodyguards. And um, so, yeah, my, my ancestry goes back to the very first generation. Wow. Wow. So that would have been quite an experience. Uh, here you are, at least from some family members, you know, converting uh, to Christianity. Yeah, they say I come from healthy stock. Um, one of those early members had five wives and 36 children. So that's what they mean by healthy stock. <laughs> ah, got it. Okay, so let's, uh, let's talk about your education. Um, you have a degree from uh, Multnomah University, and I think that's in uh, um, biblical studies, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. That's right. And then, and then you also have an MA in biblical studies. From Multnomah. Yes. Okay. From and we're going to talk area. about we're going to talk about these uh, multiple MA degrees you have and and how that's come about. Um, Too many. <laughs> uh, you went back to school, I, I suppose, like uh, most of us who ended up at Talbot to get an MA in uh, uh, in philosophy because of your interest in apologetics and uh, philosophy and studying with those guys would have been the uh, the place to do it. Yeah, I wanted to do a transition uh, from theology to philosophy so that I could go on and get a terminal degree from a uh, well-endowed secular university and to be able to uh, get in and teach and entertain ideas about truth, goodness, and beauty from a Christian perspective and, and found uh, some rather interesting insights along the way. 
<laughs> yeah, and then that prepared you well. Now this this third MA you have at Purdue is uh, uh, is quite an experience. Tell us about that. Uh, so yeah, you have that's a degree in philosophy, right? Uh, yes. Yeah, normally MAs can be one year up to even four years in cases like a, a master's of theology where it requires a lot of biblical languages too. Uh, in this case, I put all MAs to shame. I took a five-year master's degree from Purdue. Uh, I was a doctoral student there and I was all but dissertation until my fifth year when I was told um, by my advisor that I had too much of a faith perspective. Uh, never mind the fact that I was doing my dissertation on the virtue of faith, considering two of the greatest philosophers of the medieval ages, who were both Aristotelian uh, philosophers, but one was a Jew and one was a Christian. Mm. And I was looking at the virtue of faith as it did philosophical work in their systems. But um, I had some hostilities there at Purdue from six weeks into it, getting what is now an Antifa philosophy faculty in Texas, who was one of my classmates, um, who him and his roommates would prank call me at three o'clock in the morning, mocking me for my faith. At a distinguished professor of philosophy there, a Marxist, put a note in my file that I'm delusional and schizophrenic uh, because of my take in his class. My final paper ended up getting published in a peer-reviewed journal, but didn't matter. Um, and then, you know, there were some great uh, faculty there, too. I had one of the well-known atheist philosophy faculty that I studied under, William Rowe. I was his last student on the problem of evil. And he wrote a letter of recommend uh, for me to get into my next doctoral program. So I actually, I had to go after that twice. Yeah, wow. <laughs> wow, that's, that is interesting. So did that, uh, what was supposed to be your uh, dissertation, is that what ended up being uh, the book that you wrote? Uh, yeah, so I took the same topic and punted over the pond, the Atlantic Ocean, and took my PhD from the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, because if you have enough relevant coursework, and at this time I think I did, uh, you do dissertation only in the British system. So uh, yeah, I, I ended up uh, doing the same topic, and I recently got a book published last year on that uh, different title. Uh, for the book, but it's called In Search of the Good Life Through the Eyes of Aristotle, Maimonides, and Aquinas. So this is interesting because you go after a Greek philosopher, you go after a Jewish philosopher and a Christian philosopher. Yeah, it sounds like a bad bar joke. You know, you got a pagan, <laughs> a Catholic, and a Jew. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, that's what it was. So tell, tell us some, some insights as to how you've navigated uh, this because you've had some conflict, not only, I mean, it's it's not just oh, you know, you're a Christian, but it's you can't finish this degree because you're a Christian. Like there's two like. Yeah, and I, I want to be cautious there, too. It's you know, I had some other Christian friends that, that made it through just fine. It depends on, you know, who you're studying with and if you've made enemies with certain people, sure. if they have attitudes or whatever. But um, and there were Christian faculty in the department as well. Uh, but the way that this worked out with the uh you know, chair of my committee and another um, philosophy faculty who was very hostile. Um, they worked it out in such a way where I no longer had an advisor for my dissertation. And without an advisor, you can't even register for research hours. And without registering after a semester, you're gone. So mm -hmm. I even tried to find a, another Jewish advisor. I needed something like that from Haifa, Israel, a man who's um, well endowed in the field had co-authored with my advisor multiple times. 
Uh, and he, his view is the one I was actually defending. But when he found out uh, what had happened and who was on my committee, he said, no, I'm sorry, I, I yeah. can't touch this. It's too political. So there was nothing I could do about it, contrary to you know a case when I was an undergrad in Utah and I had to go legal on that one. Uh, and then a case when I was a professor at Indiana University and had to go legal on that one. There was no legal recourse on this one because you can't force a professor to advise. You can only force them to publish or perish and, mm. you know, don't plagiarize or rape an undergrad student or something mm. like that. Yeah. So um, tell us about uh, this organization, right? You're the CEO and president and uh, Rashio Christie, and it's growing. It has been growing. I remember years ago, um, might have been like 2011, 2012. I just like heard about it and then I saw mm. it kind of blossom and it's been really cool um yeah. to, to see that uh tell us what the ministry's goal are what you guys are trying to do on college campuses and i think on uh, on high yeah. school campuses as well in some places yeah as a 501c3 it's just completed its 10th year i would say we're in adolescent uh phase so we've we've grown out of infancy but we've got a long way to go uh we're on about 150 campuses from you know rutgers to some in the uc system in california uh, we do have uh ratio christi college prep for high schools and an rc prof ministry as well uh we've got board banks bylaws we've got an entire movement up in canada now in the philippines uh, where we have a Master of Arts in Apologetics with maybe 100 students in, in the upcoming graduating class and a study center in the UK so uh, and, and in South Africa as well. So we're, uh, we're making our rounds um, and uh, focusing intently on uh, thoughtful Christianity, transforming lives on campus today, changing culture tomorrow. So we deal with a lot of the big questions, uh, arguments for God's existence, arguments for the Christian God's existence, the goodness of Christianity. Uh, we do things practically as well. We get engaged in, you know, human trafficking issues and talk about, you know, God and morality related to something like that. But uh, we're very respectful. Half of, half of the students in many of our clubs are probably skeptics or non-believers, Muslims, uh, because we have a reputation that uh, we like to generate more light than heat, and we have good, deep uh, conversations that are hot. And when you touch a light bulb, it sometimes hurts, but we want to generate more light than heat. Amazing. Um, okay, so that that should that puts you on college campuses in in a sense in in a bit of a different sense than um, maybe others are used to. Uh, but before we get there, what's the difference? Mm -hmm. I, I I guess the, between what Rachel Christie does and uh, other campus organizations like crew, like navigators, like, so, you know, like why another Christian campus ministry? Yeah. Yeah. I, I used to be a faculty advisor for InterVarsity. Um, I was on faculty common staff with crew. I've done a different campus ministry. I've been in campus life as a professor, a student or campus minister in one way, shape or another for the last three decades. <laughs> uh, so I feel like I kind of live at the university. But what separates us from every other uh, campus ministry is that we do apologetics evangelism. We're like a special ops ministry focusing intently on those issues. If someone needs a hug, we give them a hug. If they need an argument, we are the ministry on campus to give them an argument. And we love to do so. Um, what separates us from every other apologetics ministry out there is that 
we're on the campus, which is, I think, the most strategic place in the world to be, as goes the campus, so goes the culture, as goes the U.S. campus, so goes the world. Okay, so let's let's jump into kind of some issues that have been, um, we, you know, we hear these political slogans, we hear folks complaining about professors and teachers making these mm -hmm. radical ideas. I mean, how, how much of that is just because the spotlight's on it, we have the internet, stuff gets recorded and kind of thrown out, and how much of it is something that we should seriously be concerned about because there's a lot of it out there? Oh, I mean, look, Politics is downstream from culture and culture is downstream from education. So if you want to clean up the pollution downstream, you've got to go upstream and invariably it leads us to the universities. If you want to see where some cockeyed idea came from down in culture, you just go up the stream and you can find some professor in some department at some university holding this. I mean, that's the name of the game, originality. You want to be avant-garde. You want to be novel and uh, be cutting edge on some new idea. Uh, so yeah, a lot of the, a lot of the, uh, you know, great ideas come from the universities, but a lot of the most crazy ideas likewise come from the universities too. And the university has been rapidly and radically changing you know, if you've not been on the campus in the last five years, no, in the last 18 months, you would not recognize it. It is changing so quickly. Uh, one of my friends, a someone who would have been my arch enemy of the past, Peter Bogosian, who wrote the book, A Manual for Creating Atheists, and I'm now friends with him. He just terminated his employment yesterday from Portland State University, the home of Antifa, um, the anti-fascist or the Marxist. Um, because he said that the universities are no longer about the pursuit of truth. That's what it was when Harvard began, Veritas. And it stayed that for 300 years. In fact, very early on, they changed the name to have it as uh, truth for Christ and the church. Yale, the same thing. Columbia, the same. I've been on campuses at most of the colonial schools. They were all Christian, uh, most of them Protestant for the first 200 years, in fact. Um, but we have since lost the universities um, about 100 years ago to uh, methodological naturalism uh, creeping into liberal Protestant thinking, and uh, it ended up giving us the social gospel and ended up taking over the universities, and Christians had to go out and start phase two, uh, Bible college movements, other Christian schools, and so forth. Um, we're now in phase two of the takeover of the American universities, but this time it is not from the hard sciences, naturalism, uh, though it had a naturalistic base. It is neo-Marxism uh, from the humanities and social sciences uh, under the guise of what is called critical theory, critical social justice, uh, Western Marxism and so forth, quickly taking over the throne room, even in medicine and mathematics and engineering. So the neo-atheists of the past, the Dawkins, the uh, Peter Bogosians and so forth, are now running from or trying to fight this new um, king in town that's now taking over uh, even in the hard sciences. So the, the universities are radically changing and they are bastions for a foreign ideology that is the heartbeat of cancel culture. Uh, it's not about the pursuit of truth, but about the indoctrination of ideology. So how, how much of that does, does it actually trickle down to um, 
you know, not allowing individuals to Christians, let's say, or anyone to, to share mm-hmm. their thoughts. So I've done uh, yeah. in years past, I, I've done quite a bit of uh, campus ministry. You know, we'd show up with a group and we'd try to engage students uh, in evangelism mm-hmm. and doing apologetics. And then we would always have, you know, campus security would come out and then they didn't know the law. So they would just like kind of make stuff up on the fly. And then we tell them what the law is. And, you know, and then there was conversations that started coming up on college campuses where it was like, no, we have like these free speech zones, you know, these specific locations. And they were always <laughs> like out of the way, kind of right. these lame places that there's no foot traffic and you can't talk to anyone. Um, and it, so it's no fun, but it was a way that they were navigating. I mean, how much of this is it where, you know, student can't go out there and say something, how much of it is legal and how much of it is just like cultural pressure, like social pressure? Cause those are two different uh, things in my mind. Yeah. I mean, at any one time I have three to six cases of legal proceedings going on, on some campus in the United States, uh, other countries, it's a bit, a bit more difficult because, we don't have this little thing called the U.S. Constitution. <laughs> Here we do, and we have to keep teaching university officials lessons that are hard for them to learn. Some of them are repeat customers at, you know, at the, in Iowa right now. They're they're going down for the third time in a row, and the last time the the judge uh, slapped the officials on the hands. It was so egregious. He made them pay the penalty out of their own pockets. Um, but yeah, I've been in legal proceedings as, um, an ethics professor. Um, I was, I had to go legal as an undergrad also. Uh, we've been engaged in 30 cases of legal proceedings since I've been here as president in the last, you know, six years. And by legal proceedings, I mean, anything from, you know, the, the attorneys advising us and helping us to get club status, Uh, Whereas previously they wouldn't allow us on campus because they uh, thought that we were threatening um, to getting kicked off of campus and uh, needing to threaten uh, litigation and and even going to the point of of litigating Um, right now, you know, so 30 cases of legal proceedings, two federal victories or one earlier this year with the Supreme Court, we contributed to a victory there. And right now we are entangled in one with the Biden administration's Department of Education. So that's and we're just the small people on yeah, campus. That's that's the thing. It's so, you know, like I, I remember getting a club status, and you could get a club status for like any random thing, right? Like you could you could <laughs> yeah. create a club, yeah. and it's like you know we love pencils. Right. You know, I, I want to have a club because <laughs> it's it's a lover of pencils right. who gather together. All you needed was essentially to fill out this paperwork and then get an advisor someone who's on uh, a professor on someone on staff at the university and then you're kind of fine to go um, you know you yeah. have offices and you elect student leaders and all that stuff so why would you know like being a threat like what what does that mean like to whom how what's the well, justification on this stuff usually there's there's probably the top four issues that we usually face is um you know speech codes thou shalt not say politically incorrect words um speech zones uh there are certain places where you belong and especially if you're a christian campus ministry and that is over in that corner over there behind the bushes we've had federal victories over this stuff um and another might be campus fees or funds. Everybody pays fees into the system. 
and you ought to have an equal opportunity of distribution out. And sometimes they say, you know, no, you, <laughs> we're not giving you the funding. So we'll have to call in the Calvary on that one. Or uh, for a lack of better word, uh, the all comers policy um, that uh, everybody should be able to, in a non-discriminatory way, be a member of your club. Well, <laughs> we're probably the most diverse of all clubs in terms of a club of worldviews because some of our chapters have more than half of the people in the chapter as members that are non-Christians and even skeptics. I've spoken at some of them. Um, but we insist that as a Christian club, like maybe a vegetarian club, that your leaders ought to have that association. They ought to be Christians, right? A Muslim club could have Muslim presidents and vice presidents and secretaries. A, a vegetarian club shouldn't be forced to have a meat eater as their president or, you know, a neo-Nazi for the Jewish club. It's just insane. But I, I kid you not, this is what we're engaged with in the Biden administration right now. Wow. Um, so it, it is a real threat. It's a real threat. And, uh, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, I, I don't know, really, on the Internet, we don't know who's going to be watching this. But um, the, my, my kids are very young. My oldest is seven years old. So I'm not really concerned about, you know, him going off into college unless, you know, in the next two years I figure out his a genius um, and can do that but uh, you have kids around that age and uh, and and folks might be watching this and have kids and they're like well we're sending our kids off to college and they remember what college was in their days but it's a bit yeah. different there there are different stuff that are facing our our children um, I I know this firsthand because I was a youth pastor for quite some time I know how in the classroom some of these dynamics have worked um, but so what are those real threats uh, that are coming our kids ways where you can give some wisdom as to how they can navigate it without being maybe just rash in your face? They don't know what they're doing. They just jump into the fire. Yeah, um, I mean, it's the ideology. So when you get on campus, if your moral code says I need to be practicing purity and uh, be of sober mindedness, rather than, you know, Friday night, bar night, and uh, sleeping around with whatever or whoever walks around, uh, then you probably will be facing some different kinds of temptation when you get there. And most, um, you know, Christians who are strong Christians can, you know, put the hand up and resist that because they've got Christian convictions and they have this thing called fidelity and purity and honoring God with their bodies and so forth. Uh, but once they go through all these classrooms and in virtually every topic, they're facing some uh, subversive ideology against their viewpoint, then they start to say, well, why should I hold fast to um, a morality that I've grown to believe and appreciate when the foundation of it's not agreed upon by any of these professors? Surely all the PhDs are smart uh, smarter than the youth pastor, smarter than mom and dad at home. I mean, they taught me about Santa, figured that one out on my own, but they also taught me about God. And I, I had to wait to hear from the smart people on that one. Well, it's more complicated than that. 
Um, the reason why there is a radically disparate, I mean, talk about, you know, you hear this th thing called white privilege or class privilege or male, talk about privilege. Secularism is uber privileged on the academy. These are secular baptismal fonts. I mean, the number of Christian faculty that are, forget the ones willing to speak up, but that are even on campus is so minuscule. This is where Peter Bogosian, my atheist friend, said to me one day after I lectured in his class on uh, arguments for belief in God, it was his atheism seminar. He said, we need to form an alliance. If you go, I go. If I go, you go. You guys are already gone for the most part. They're coming after me now, classical liberals. I mean, it, it's gotten so bad that the ratio of left to right and now uber left um, is through the roof. It's like if, if it was a stock and you were trying to invest and make money in the stock market and you saw this radical you know, chart going like this, almost straight up, uh, that's what's happening. So if, if people aren't teaching their kids critical thinking, they're going to imbibe critical theory, which is not critical thinking. It's neo-Marxism, it's Western Marxism, cultural Marxism, call it what you want, but that's what's happening right now uh, through the administrators, even in the hard sciences and so forth. That's why you're getting the neo-atheists like Richard Dawkins and Steven Pinker and Jerry Coyne and Peter Bogosian, who are all going, whoa, what just hit us, right? Um, so Stalin used to say, and so you've got the ideas, but now you've got the issue of uh, free thought, not just free speech, right? This is about cognitive liberty now. Stalin allegedly said that ideas are more powerful than guns. We don't allow our enemies to have guns, so why should we let them have ideas? That's ideology. Um, Voltaire, the deist, uh, allegedly said, it was actually his biographer that said it, but derived appropriately from his works, um, I disagree with what you say, but I would defend to the death your right to say it. Now, that's a classically liberal position. That's a position that we can almost die for. That's one where you can have a university whose telos and ethos was about the pursuit of truth, where you can debate in the, um, uh, in, in the exchange of the free market of ideas and, and may the true ideas emerge to the top, right? Stalin is not about the free exchange of ideas. There is truth and there is political truth. There is justice and there is social justice. And we ought not confuse these things. Yeah, someone who reigns, um, my official birth certificate says the USSR, by the way, because uh, I was born in Armenia under uh, the communist regime. And wow. for the first five years of my life, I was under the communist regime. Now, I don't remember much of that, but one thing I do know... No is the impact that communism has left in my home country. And I recently went and lived in Armenia uh, for about a year and a half. Uh, we just moved back to California a year ago, exactly a year ago, actually. Um, and uh, seeing the effects, seeing the damage that communism has, seeing mm -hmm. the, the, hearing the stories of, you know, my dad has, uh, my, my dad shared a story with me where he met this really old guy. Uh, so this is in the 80s, late 80s, where this guy had been sent to Siberia for like 30 years of his life. 
And the context in which he had been sent to Siberia was a conversation we had, he had with three of his friends, three, four of his friends, in which he mocked Stalin. And this is when Stalin was obviously alive, uh, where he said something to the likes of Stalin's an idiot, he doesn't know what he's doing. And his friends ratted him out, and he was shipped off to Siberia for 30 years. But, you know, we share stories like that, and we hear, right? Like, now, I hear that in my background. Um, my parents were born in Iran. They're Armenians from Iran. And so they wow. saw the whole revolution uh, between uh, the Ayatollah and the Shah. And uh, so, you know, I hear all these stories, but then you kind of sit there and say, but this is America. Like, that won't happen here. I mean, yeah, we have not, the constitution of freedom and liberty and rights. And then here you are saying it's like, no, it's gone past, you know, what's called hate speech to you can't even think that stuff. And even if you're thinking it, we're going to put so much social pressure on you where you there's no yeah. way you can express it. Yeah, um, because, you know, debate is even hate now because it's something that uh, uh, Western logic is used as a way to manipulate and subdue oppressed classes and groups of people the way they've always done it. Um, so, you know, even even um, live debate is not allowed. We've had debates canceled on us because we did not have the proper oppressed group representative there. Uh, never mind that they were fully equipped, uh, PhDs, well published and so forth but um they didn't fit the political truth uh the politically correct narrative of someone i mean it, it recently in a, in a case in in nebraska that we're dealing with the university has kept out a stellar philosophy professor who used to be a full professor there went elsewhere and has published the Dick, the Cambridge Dictionary of Philosophy, but simply because he was going to be talking on a Christian idea, they wouldn't let him have it unless we had someone of an opposition party. And that's not the first time we've had that. This is happening numerous times. Uh, so these places are not bastions of free thinking uh, institutions as they once were. Um, the neo-atheist at least believed that truth was real, objective, knowable, um, only scientific truth, of course, right? Because the world is naturalistic. And so any knowledge claim must somehow um, reduce to third person description in chemistry and physics. But at least truth was there and knowable. And they had some classical uh, ethos about them, uh, liberal freedom-loving ethos uh, that they would allow debate to engage. That's not the case now. There are hate words. And what do hate words do? I mean, students are so stressed out. Um, it could create a suicidal ideation. And, you know, so many hate words now are whatever political truth determines them determines them to be and so there are certain things you just cannot talk on on campus thou shalt not this so, new movement is very authoritarian so it's already not are, liberal i mean i i'm just uh, trying to picture what's going on here are you know you enter um school and you're given a list of words not to use i mean um how do you how does the student know about these things right is it just like oh i'm just gonna pick it up and no i i can't 
assume someone's gender or something like that or it's hey legitimately you know he we're gonna tell you you're gonna take a class and here's a list of words that are no-nos yeah i mean there are certain words you can't use and others you're trying to be compelled to use right and you might just start imagining what they might be when you start thinking about the uh, groups of race, class, sex, gender, and so forth. Uh, whether they be personal pronouns um, that you're now being forced to use at the pain of loss of employment as a professor to Jordan Peterson be, would be one case in Canada, but we used to recently had a graduate from Purdue's philosophy program who won a court case over this, but they were trying to douse him at uh, Ohio State on the same issue. To um, you know, certain literature that uses words uh, that no longer ought to be said in a descriptive manner. You know, if you've got a statue that represents something that's politically incorrect you take it down. If you have a classical piece of literature that mentions it, you ban the book. Um, and this is called um, research justice. So this, this is interesting. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of thinking uh, about Socrates's uh, kind of speech with his friends. Um, and there, yeah. there's, a, there's a scene in, in one of these conversations where there's a slave present, right? Where Socrates proves that knowledge is inerrant and... Uh, you know, it's kind of remembering. And he, he asks this slave uh, some logical kind of math questions and, and he's able to figure out like, well, we're going to ban that because there's a slave present. Is, is that the kind of stuff you're talking about? Like, oh, look, there's, these guys were okay with having slaves, you know? Is that the sort of stuff we're talking about? Uh, yeah, I mean, if you know, obviously, if you use the N-word or something like that, you can use all kinds of other vile speech, but certain words ought not be used and you should be using, you know, gender neutral as much as possible. And if you're um, really good and sensitive and moral, um, you know, you'll put in your signature line, uh, uh, he, him, xi or whatever. Um, but you can't have even, you know, classical literature that may be good literature that uses terms or expressions or takes a position um, and debates a topic without just getting absolutely lambasted. Some things just cannot be even open for debate. And some people can't do the debating either. So, uh, for example, and this is the genetic fallacy is constantly uh, being used and abused in this way. Um, you know, if you're a, a male student, you have nothing to say on abortion, right? Because what can a male possibly know about uh, being pregnant and being faced with the choice of abortion? If you're white, you can't possibly, or even brown, because now there's brown privilege, you can't possibly speak on a topic um, that you don't have the proper um pigment in your skin and there are variations even in blackness too so i mean race class sex gender and so forth there are certain books that we can no longer use certain literary books that are getting banned 
um, Western Civ, hi ho, hi ho. Western Civ has got to go. Even if you've got a $20 million grant, a university like Yale uh, will say, take your money back. Um, so history is even being rewritten. So we're, we're learning. The university system is now, it's figured out a brilliant way to get Christian parents and uh, grandparents and even non-Christian parents uh, to not just apostatize from the Christian faith, but to apostatize from common sense, things that are, you know, bedrock principles that have made um, the Western civilized world great, um, Christian or, or no Christian here. This is why, you know, alliances, new alliances are being forged between those that might be um, liberal atheists, classically liberal in that sense, and and conservative Christians, because more people are starting to see what's happening on the campuses, and uh, it's it's our money that's paying for these things. Yeah, uh, that's definitely the case here in California as uh, we're looking at this recall election, and um, there's there's you know very strange bedfellows if if you think about it like that, right? It's like folks are. Uh, I, you know, I've been having conversations with folks that I wouldn't necessarily classify as conservative because uh, they don't have conservative ideology. But we're hey, the... you got Caitlyn, Caitlyn Jenner or, um, you know, Bruce Jenner in the same party as Larry Elder. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, Against it's, yeah. Gavin Newsom. The thing is that uh, when if you're kind of have your ear to the ground and having actual conversations with real people, you realize that people are very uneasy about this stuff. People mm -hmm. who aren't, you know, you can't throw them into your, oh, they're white, liberal, male kind of categories. I mean, I'm, most right. of the people I talk to are immigrant Armenians uh, who, uh, you know, came here as uh, young uh, kids, you know, like myself when I was 11, or some people who came here as uh, in their teens, who really struggled and stuff like that, saying, wait, wait hang on here. No, you can't do that to my children. Uh, we're going to fight back. And again, I wouldn't necessarily put them in this religious, evangelical kind of conservative category. Um, and I think it will be very interesting to see what takes place. What do you say to Christians who kind of have this defeatist mentality? Um, mm -hmm. And then or maybe even theologically might try to establish, you know, like don't fight back. Now, you talked about like legal litigations and all that stuff. I mean, right. that's a sort of fighting back. I mean, don't don't right. you have to develop some kind of I mean, you have to justify it. You're a Christian, number one. Number two, you're running a Christian organization. Um, you got to justify it theologically um, within the Christian worldview to say, yes, we are given freedom and the right and even allowed by God to fight back with the necessary kind of tools mm -hmm. in our hands. How do you respond to some of these people? Yeah, uh, strength in numbers. Uh, we need to stand together now or we will be picked off individually. And they're coming after everyone, um, but it's the most threatening first, and then they'll go down the list. I'm reminded of a Martin Niemöller, uh, a commentator, a pastor, a cultural thinker who spent some time in the concentration camps in Germany. Um, and got out alive to write about it. And he said, you know, first of all, um, 
they came after the trade unionists. I was not a trade unionist, so I did not speak up. Then they came after the socialist. I was not a socialist, um, not a globalist socialist anyway. So I did not speak up. Uh, then they came after the Jew. I was not a Jew, so I said nothing. Last of all, they came for me and no one was left to speak for me. Too many people are kowtowed into silence. This is not about prayer in schools. This is about what my atheist colleague, Peter Bogosian, would call cognitive liberty. It's not even about free speech. If you think the wrong thought, um, you're possibly going to be ousted. And they were after him for a year. His office was located in the Portland State University Police Department, for all, for heaven's sakes, for his own protection, um, you know, the home of Antifa. Um, so they're going to come after those who are most threatening um, and those who speak up. And yes, you're, you're, you could get nailed to the wall. Um, but what is the cost of not speaking up when you've got radicals uh, taking over the most influential institutions? Um, you know, some Christians would say, you know, don't, you know, don't litigate. We're not supposed to sue. And, you know, what would Jesus do? And I say, you know what, that what would Jesus do has been used and abused. <laughs> Um, you can't ask that question of everything. I, I'm a moral philosopher in my area of specialization. And in ethics, you've got to broaden the horizon a little bit here, because if we said, what would Jesus do? I would not have three children because that presupposed that I had sexual intercourse at least three times. That's what my kids think. It was just three times. Um, and if Jesus didn't do that, well, the Mormon Jesus might, but I don't believe in the Mormon Jesus anymore. Um, but the, the traditional historic Jesus was not married and he wasn't out there having adultery. Um, he wasn't having sexual intercourse. Uh, you might also say, you know, that the, 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 the Jesus wouldn't be a federal judge. He wouldn't sentence someone. He would exonerate them. He would turn the other cheek. Look, some of that stuff in Matthew 5 through 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, we need to look at as uh, personal versus uh, public ethics, right, uh, for law. Uh, second, we need to consider the fact that Jesus had a particular mission in life. He was like the Messiah. Um, when you say, what would Paul do? He would litigate the heck out of people. I mean, he did. Seems like, yeah, seems um, like it. <laughs> In, in multiple uh, countries and in multiple situations, he appealed all the way to Caesar for his Roman citizenship. And so, you know, can we litigate is one question. Should we litigate is another. You know, we want to check our motives. What, what's the end goal here? Is it wise? Uh, but can we? Look, we're not suing a brother or sister here. We are suing because some radicals have violated our constitutional rights. When we're supposed to submit to authorities, it's the authorities plural, not just individual. And some people think that the university is the only authority in town. It's not. And they need to learn their lessons. First of all, they were started by Christians for the most part. But second, um, the authority is the law of the land. And there's a reason that the First Amendment is the first. And the Second Amendment packing is second right behind it for a reason in America. Um, freedom is is a value upheld here. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, uh, and those presuppose freedom of conscience uh, to not be forced to do certain things or to believe certain things. 
Um, and these are publicly funded universities. My taxes go to these universities. I have a say about this too. And they're discriminating above all groups against conservative Christian thinkers. And then, of course, certain libertarians and others that are liberals that are willing to defend uh, others whose views they disagree with and so forth. Um, but if we do not do this, then we're kicked off the campus. Um, I just want to talk about Jesus, some campus ministry says. Well, good. Go 20 miles down the road once you're no longer on any campuses uh, because you're not allowed and try to buy a big bullhorn and see if your voice can reach. And you're going to look obnoxious anyway, yeah. like that street preacher that no one even, likes. Even if you buy, obnoxious. even even if you buy the bullhorn, then the the city police show up and tell you we have a city ordinance of uh, bullhorn use. And then, uh, you know. yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, the case that we we won as a federal victory uh, last year um, in Georgia, perfect uh, narrative for 2020. Young black male accosted by two white police officers. Were preaching the gospel on campus <laughs> you know he was he was told he had to leave because he was in a speech zone that you ought not freely speak so he went and got his permission slips gave them the date gave the literature he was going to be handing out and then went there um and they said what are you doing here well i went through the right protocol yes but you are um uh what was the expression uh, you're disturbing the peace. I'm disturbing the peace. I'm just talking with people about their viewpoints. And if they don't want to talk, they don't have to. And I'm not yelling or screaming. And you've got this band playing on stage right behind me using the F-bomb at the top of their lungs. Talk about disturbing the peace. So this young black male decided that he was not going to take this because he has rights it took a couple of years, but um, we jumped in as uh, amicus brief and, and assisted and sued, and um, he got his day in court and justice. Praise God. Praise God. We got some questions here. Um, so Old Hickory says, in terms of street preaching on public college campuses, what are the current options given the elimination of free speech zones? Uh, and he gives an example here. Let me throw that up there. He says... Um, for example, I'm trying to get an outdoor space reserved at a public campus in Oklahoma, but they are saying I need to reserve a table and pay a student fee claiming I'm a solicitor. Any thoughts? Now, public and private universities are different, right? Just like private businesses and so forth. Um, my first thought to him is that he needs to call somewhere like Alliance Defending Freedom or FIRE, which is a secular representation. Even the ACLU is coming in and defending. In fact, uh, in one of the recent Supreme Court cases that we we're involved in, we were partnered up with the ACLU on this. Um, but speech zones are generally unconstitutional. Uh, we're generally, we're patient. Uh, we don't, we don't just go sue flippantly, uh, but we had a pro-life display at one of our campuses and they wouldn't let us do it. Uh, they would allow, you know, LGBT clubs to be right in the center of the campus and have a platform, but they put us, our group behind bushes in the corner of the class of the campus where no one is even walking by. Um, and so they discriminate in that way. So at the very least, um, the constitutionality of speech zones is a question. And second, if they are not um, equally applied, 
even where and when any particular rules are applied, they need to be equally applied. Otherwise, you've got a lawsuit on your hands. And I would encourage that individual to call Alliance Defending Freedom. First, about the speech zone. Second, uh, with information about um, what other groups are being able to do their thing where his group is not. Uh, these ought to be non-discriminatory, literally. If, if they're going to be available publicly at a public university for one group, they need to be there for all groups. And uh, student groups pay their fees to be a student group, to have library privileges and parking access and, and maybe uh, list, uh, you know, freshman lists when it comes to, um, you know, launch month on the first month to be able to get new names and stuff like that. Different universities might slice it up a bit differently. So there are some nuances, but they've got to be equal. And the constitutionality of speech zones is highly uh, dubious. Thanks for that. So what would your advice be? Because some people, you know, react and say, well, I'm not going to send my kids to these places, right? I mean, universities. And they're kind of a part of our society and culture so much uh, where I don't know how rational that is and how good that is uh, for us. Um, you definitely see it and your organization sees it, Rashio Christie. You guys see it as... A, uh, a place where we essentially send missionaries, right? Like it, it, it is where the gospel is necessary. There's lots and lots of people there uh, that need to hear. What would be your advice to Christian parents who got high schoolers who are seniors, juniors, and they're getting prepared for that and they're looking at universities? My first word is to do your jobs. You, the parent, are the ones in charge of educating your children and preparing them for when they grow up, they won't depart from the faith. That proverb is being violated all the time because the parents and then the youth pastors and the churches aren't equipping them. They're socializing them quite well, perhaps in sports. Um, and then they may pay and they may go into debt to pay high tuition rates only to spend 18 years of sweat, blood and tears to then see their child either leave the faith or get conscripted to work for the other side. So you've got to teach them critical thinking skills. You've got to teach them good Christian thought in philosophy and uh, biblical studies and so forth. If you're not doing it, you are derelict of duty uh, as the parent and as the church. We need to be equipping these people not only for uh, sur not only to survive, but also to thrive right? Because the left to right ratio of professors is 12 to one for those getting ready to retire. And it's 23 to one uh, for those uh, younger scholars, 40 and under who are going to be there like a Supreme Court justice as a lifetime appointee once they get their tenure. In New England, it's 27 to one. And if the parent says, well, let's send them to a religion class at least. No, that's the worst place in the whole university. That's 70, seven zero to one. So um, while having said that, no, I do not advocate retreatism, defeatism. Um, I know there are some books out there like, um, you know, Rod Dreher, who's got some good ideas on the Benedict option about, you know, preparing for a durable future. Um, but we ought to be doing that anyway. Uh, we shouldn't be, where are we going to retreat to? 
this is the last frontier. <laughs> Where are we going to go? We already left Princeton and started Westminster, and then that starts to get taken over. Or the the new generation of Christian schools, you know, are are now being infiltrated by certain ideologies. There, it's not just that the barbarians at the gates; they're in the citadel. It's not just academia and media; it's now ecclesia. So um, parents need to, you know, batten down the hatches because this ain't your grandma's America anymore. And pastors need to be training in that as well. Uh, too many um, you know, fog machines and skinny jeans rather than critical thinking is happening in our home, in our churches. And, um, you know, it's, it's difficult for parents. I get that. We're now two careerists. And you get home and you're tired and you don't have time and the kids are educated by the public school. And when they get home, especially if they're teens, you know, they want to play video games or go hang out with their friends or something like that. Um, but you've got to count the costs. Uh, if parents aren't going to do it, you're basically just abdicating your right and responsibility over to the churches, which in large measure aren't doing the job, which is why you get people like Mark Knoll writing books, uh, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, which is to say there isn't much of an evangelical mind. That's from a Christian author's perspective, or Bertrand Russell from an atheist perspective. Um, you know, most Christians would rather die than think. In fact, they do. Well, I've got to say that I'm sympathetic with that sentiment in, in some respects. Um, you're not, you don't need to be a Christian intellectual but you need to at least equip yourselves and love God with your mind as Jesus commanded um, so that we are fully orbed Christians with hands, heart, and head. We need to reestablish fellowship rather than the excommunication that has happened uh, with the head of Christ in the Christian life. Um, as we As we come towards the end of our time here together, um, I'm going to put you in like a prophetic, uh, I don't know, zone and ask you what you would, uh, what, what's your prediction? What do you think? I mean, you said, look, the last 18 months, there's been changes and there hasn't been much of the last 18 months. I mean, students have been stuck at home. Um, and then the other thing you said is kind of this uh, trajectory where everything's going up. Uh, my initial reaction is whenever, you know, you're looking at stocks or whatever and something is spiking like that, it's going to crash. Um, so it, would it be correct for me to assume that we're going to see like this stuff can't be maintained and then these ideologies are going to kind of self-destruct. They're going to start eating off their own limbs. Um, yeah. or, I mean, do you see the future as kind of this bleak and dark kind of thing, or there's going to be a revival? There's going to be, you know, lots and lots of folks coming to Christ and a change in our culture. Revival or ruin. Um, that's what we're facing. Uh, you know, if I look at the global situation and Christendom, uh, sometimes I think, okay, maybe, um, you know, Europe will become Islamic in two generations by birth rate alone, not just immigration. Um, America will become Europe, but on steroids because of the infiltration of critical theory in every category now. Um, and China might be the future church. So we ought to learn Mandarin. <laughs> uh, if we're going to, you know, retreat, uh, retreat to China, but give it a little while, <laughs> build some bridges, find some safe havens. Um, but yeah, in, in reality, 
um, you know, we are not called as Christians to be defeatists. We're not called to retreat. We're called to hold the line, to advance the cause of Christ. Um, these, this is not about culture wars and fighting for prayer in schools, for heaven's sakes. That's so far in the past. This is about cognitive liberty. This is something that, again, my former arch enemy, now friend, Peter Bogosian, who wrote the book, A Manual for Creating Atheists. In chapter seven, he you know, writes a clarion call for academicians, uh, professors, faculty, and activist students to um, you know, take away the, to, to lead people by reason away from re religion and back to reality. He's changed his tune in some respects. He sees what's happening on the universities. These are not just conservative Christians that, that see this. His conviction is that he has laid down his, his guns on the theism atheism debate because he's got bigger fish to fry. He's dedicated his career to the defeat of um, social justice. And what I mean by that is critical social justice. That's a can of worms term. It's a Trojan horse. It can mean a ton of different things. But what the academic elites mean, what the um, authors mean by this stuff, this is neo-Marxism. It, it's, it's subversive. It's not Democrat and Republican. It's not liberal and conservative. It's illiberalism. It's the new left. It's the uber left. Um, these people do not believe in free speech. They do not believe in free thought. And we'd better wake up because this is a civilizational matter. Um, and I think alliances need to be forged on campuses um, for the sake of, you know, our, our livelihoods. We, we want to be able to debate. I would love to debate. If, if we can debate in transparency in an open platform, I think the Christian worldview wins. But this is more than just that. This is the, the, the ability to even have the debate. That's why I believe in defending not just the faith, but defending the ability to defend the faith. And I went to defense for Peter Bogosian. Um, and we offered our attorneys for him as well. Because, um, you know, there is a common good that we fight for in culture as well. Um, human sex trafficking would be an obvious example probably for everyone except for the pimp, right? But there are many common goods that we can fight for. And I think people need to wake up and realize what's happening. Amen. Amen to that. And this, this is where, uh, you know, Christianity has given the world many gifts. And hey, you're welcome for the university, everyone. Uh, but hospitals, uh, yeah, yeah, orphanages, you know? yeah. I mean, we can just, we just get, can go on. And, you know, some of us who happen to be from certain parts of the world and have seen certain things, um, we realize that things aren't, uh, and can't always, you say, um, remain good. Like they have this continuous optimistic, Americans are extremely optimistic. Uh, they always see the good in my opinion. Um, and the reality is that if, if you do some reading and figure out the conversations that were happening um, before, uh, you know, the communist socialist takeover of Russia, it looks a lot like the conversations that are happening today. Highly recommend you guys go and do your research and read on um, any one of these revolutions that kind of led uh, people a certain way. You go, what happened? Well, you know, let's never forget that Germany... Uh, pre-World War II is the most civilized, has the best philosophers, the best scientists, the best theologians in the world. And so you say, how did this happen? Look, look at the academia, look, look at what the professors are saying, 
and uh, the kind of conversations they're having, then you figure out what happened. And I think that's where we need to be. Um, I would just personally recommend everybody read Francis Schaeffer um, because I think he's got a great deal to say uh, on these things. Again, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for taking the time and, and joining us. We're going to have a bunch of links in the description box, links to Rocio Christie, uh, links to your own uh, books. I wasn't aware that you wrote that book on Aristotle, Maimonides, and, um, and Aquinas. I, I just put that in my wish list. So that's, that's going to be coming to my house. And I'm really excited to read that because I think it's a very interesting um, uh, you know, argument to be had uh, or argument to be made and very interesting conversation to learn from these different uh, uh, perspectives, uh, especially mm -hmm. as we uh, seek to engage. Look, Christians are for engagement, right? We are for having a dialogue. Like I love talking to atheists. I love talking to Muslims because I want to have those conversations. And anybody who's going to stop me from having those conversations is bad for society. They're not good for us. They are bad for society. They're bad for our future. Uh, they're bad for our children. Any final words? I say join the movement. Don't be silent. Uh, don't sit on the sidelines. Uh, you may last longer than the more threatening of us, but they will come for you. This is um, a cultural war that we're in right now. I've been studying revolution for the last year with a group of attorneys, and we've been reading all the primary resources on the major revolutions that have taken place. Uh, and this is a, call it a soft revolution. It is certainly a cultural revolution. And we are in transition in this country. People need to wake up and figure this out. It's not a conspiracy. It's, it's obvious. It's right there in front of you. Uh, you just need to start um, put on the, putting the thinking cap on and uh, hone, hone your skills in critical thinking, not in critical theory. Well, thank you. Everybody, thank you for watching this. Uh, share it out. Hit the uh, subscribe button if you're not subscribed and the bell notification because that helps us in all sorts of ways. But these are conversations that we ought to have and these are conversations that uh, people should be thinking about. So share these videos out and, and sit down and have a conversation uh, with your friends about this stuff because we need to be prepared. We need to be on guard. Uh, and we need to be on our watchtowers paying attention because, uh, you know, the, the future matters. I mean, we should be thinking ahead. Take care. God bless you guys. And we'll see you next time.